That's what we're saying to our friends and neighbors. We're saying to them, nothing like you saw in that video. That is not a training video, all right? That is what not to do. Uh, what we're doing is we're simply saying to our family and friends, hey, would you sit with me? And we've given you these cards. Would you make sure that you put them either in your purse or in whatever it is you're going to carry home with you today so that this week you have them? On the back is all the information they need to remember where we are and when we start, you know, the five W's, who, what, when, where, why, and how, which is an H. I don't know why I say five W's. But anyway, there it is. Sit with me. It's Easter. Uh, I hope you're having uh, a great beginning to a spring break, if that's where your family is right now. My wife and kids are out. My son had a college visit. My wife is going to visit her grandmother. That means I've had a really rough week. If today doesn't go well, you can blame my wife um, for it, because I just don't thrive when she's uh, not around. But I hope you're doing better than I've been doing this week. If you want to, you can go ahead and get along with us by following along your message notes. They're in this little brochure that looks like this on the inside. Again, it says, sit with me. And while you're pulling that out, it is true that eight out of 10 people who study this have discovered that eight out of 10 of your friends would probably say yes to you if you would invite them to come to church with you if they don't have a church home that they're already attending. Now, we're in the middle of a message series, or actually we're in the last week of a message series called Symbols symbols. And what we've been looking at are the different symbols of faith that mean something particular to this congregation. And so if you're our guest today, it's a great day to be with us because you're going to discover our heartbeat on a subject that has caused a lot of people concern and has created a lot of bad press for Christians, especially in the last 25 or 30 years or so. And today we as a congregation are discovering our heart behind something in a fresh and new way. And you need to know that this congregation is an incredibly generous congregation. And I'm going to tell you some of those stories uh, today. So we're going to finish up symbols today. And the next week on Easter, when you bring your guests, your family and friends, we're starting a new message series called Get Up. Get Up. Um, we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus got up out of the grave. And we're going to talk about the areas of life where the resurrection of Jesus makes a difference. It's not just a doctrine to us. It's not just something we say we believe. We believe that the resurrection of Jesus, that he literally was dead and he literally came back alive and he's still alive today. We believe that makes a practical difference in multiple areas of life. And over the next several weeks, we're going to explore that. So if you'll bring your family, if you'll bring your friends, my commitment to you is that they'll have a message next Sunday that they will understand They'll have a message next Sunday that is biblical, that's about Jesus, it's not about our church. And they'll have a message that I hope God will use to get inside their heart in such a way that they'll begin to explore all that Jesus can mean for them. So that's my commitment to you. You bring them and I'll do my best to make it all about Jesus. Now today we're talking about the subject that it's all about maturity, not about money. It's about maturity, not about money. And I want to talk with you today about why churches talk about money. And I can't answer why every other church does. But in this church, when we talk about money, we're not talking about money. We're talking about maturity. Now, by this point, you know that you showed up on the Sunday when I'm going to talk about money. Right? And so somebody's like, I knew we should have slept in today. This is like a blow-off Sunday. It kind of reminds me of the pastor that was discovered by the little toddler boy just before service. He was praying. The pastor was praying, and the little boy said to him, why are you praying? And the pastor said, I'm praying so that the Lord will give me a good sermon. And the little boy looked at him and said, well, then why doesn't he do that? Um, that's kind of the way I... I feel sometimes when I'm up here talking about subjects that I know people kind of bristle with. But I want to just encourage you today. You don't have to put on your seatbelt. I'm not going for your wallet today. I want to show you a spiritual dynamic that is at play every time we talk about money. And this is really a message that's for Four Corners people. But again, if you're our guests, it's a really great day to be here because you'll get to hear what we talk about when you're not around. All right? These are the kinds of things that the leaders of this church, me, our staff, our board, this kind of stuff we talk about when we talk about why it is money is, or at least it seems to be, such a heartache for people and churches. Why is that? Well, because ultimately it's really not about money. There's a spiritual dynamic. And it may have been a long time since you've explored that, but I want you to go with me boldly today to explore what it is that I'm trying to help you understand when I say it's maturity and not money. Maturity and not money. So let's look right there on your message notes, number one. Here's the truth. It's impossible to become a fully developing follower of Jesus 
Now that phrase, the reason it's in italics is, that's what we say is the mission of our church. We think God put us in North Cincinnati to help families become fully developing followers of Jesus. That phrase is important to us. Uh, the, 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 the word fully simply represents there's no part of your life if you're committed to Jesus that Jesus doesn't want to be Lord over. Jesus wants to be in charge of all the recessed corners of your heart, all the hidden areas of your life, all the open, on-display areas of your life, every single part. He's not interested in just giving us a fire insurance policy. For those of you that grew up in church, you know what I'm referring to there. He's not interested in just making you a good person. He wants to be what the Bible calls Lord, and that means he's in charge. So when we say a fully developing person. We mean all of your life. And the word developing just acknowledges something we know about us. I hope you know it about you. It's going to make your journey here a whole lot better, is that we're not done yet. Are you done? Because if you're done, if you've been perfected already, then you're not going to fit around here because nobody in this place is done. That's why we use the word developing, active, ongoing. We're not developed. We're developing. I have areas where I need to grow. You have areas where you need to grow. The interesting dynamic about that is, is I can see where you need to grow much easier and much more enjoyably than I can see where I need to grow. And you can see where I need to grow much better than you can see where you need to grow. It's just a human dynamic. We all have the propensity for self-deception. So we remind ourselves in our mission statement that every area of our life, God still wants to be Lord, and we probably have some area to grow in. In fact, I'm probably going to have to keep growing until the Lord takes me all the way home and he gives me a new body and a new mind and a new way of thinking in a brand new environment. And at that point, I'm done. You know, I'll kind of be like him. I'll see him as he is, is what the Bible says. But until then, I'm fully developing. And I'm following Jesus. I'm not following your agenda, although it might be a good one. I'm trying not to follow my agenda. I'm trying to follow the agenda of Jesus. So we're fully developing Followers of Jesus. So number one, again, it's impossible to become a fully developing follower of Jesus without developing as a steward of financial resources. The word there is steward. That's our blank. I'm not talking of a loaded word. It simply means manager. When we talk about a theology of money, what does the Bible have to say? What is our church's value of money? Why is it about maturity and not money? This word steward becomes important. It's a lesson my dad tried to teach me as he was growing in his own faith, and I was a young boy. That everything belongs to the Lord. Everything. And at best, it's on loan to me. The pieces that God loans to me are on loan to me to manage. They don't belong to me. And sometimes the reason why money becomes such an issue in discussing spiritual matters is, is we don't begin with the beginning. We begin with the, with the wrong pronoun. We think it's mine. It's mine. That's the pronoun we have in mind, in mind. But the truth is, is that it's God's. It's his, right? It's not mine. It's his. That's the right pronoun. Now, you know the problem with pronouns. Those of you that have had toddlers in your house, two-year-olds, you've heard about the terrible twos. My kids are slow. It hit in the threes. It was a terrible threes. They were fine in the twos. Jill and I thought we were doing great. I looked at everybody else's kids. And I was like, your kids stink. My kids at two are awesome. And then the threes came. And we made up for lost time. We made up for lost time, man. I'm not kidding. It was rough. I don't know what it was. I don't know if they're just a little slow or what. But they wrapped their minds around the pronoun mine. 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 I hate that pronoun until I need to use it for me. Then it's a perfectly appropriate pronoun. But in my kids, I can see how ugly mine is. Mine. And they hold on and they grip and they, little kids, so strong. It's incredible how strong they are when they want to hold on to something. Right? No, it's actually not yours. It's mine. It really is mine. Give it to me. Right? So you know how it is in other people. But when it comes to this subject, one of the reasons it gets all muddy and emotional and awkward is followers of Jesus sometimes don't have a robust understanding that it really does all belong to God. And when you start with that, this subject gets a little easier to talk about. 
when you understand it really isn't yours. So let me just back this down a little bit for followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, great Sunday to be here because these are core matters for Christians. And sometimes we're afraid to talk about them because we know we don't live up to them. And in not talking about them, they actually sometimes hold a power over us, that hiddenness, that staying in the shadows actually sometimes holds a power over us and gives an impression of something that's not true. But when I was growing up, my dad reminded me, this house that we live in, he would say, it's not mine. Yeah, my name's on the deed, but two things. One, the bank still owns a good portion of it, number one. It's a facade that I own, it. I'll own it in 30 years, he would say to me, right? But beyond that, it really is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. And so this house is to be used for him. It's a place where he takes joy in us having shelter and being together and having a meal together, but it's really his. And then I saw my parents open their doors all the time to serve people. We had missionaries stay with us that were back home on furlough often. We took in students from foreign countries all the time. They stayed with us. If somebody was down on their luck, there was always a place to sleep. That was normal because my dad knew the house is not mine. And he would say to us, this food is not ours. It's the Lord's. And so when he would pray over the food, he taught us, it's not ours. It's been given to us by a gracious and generous God to strengthen our bodies. For what purpose? Do you know it or is it just words? Strengthen our bodies for what? For your service, Lord. It wasn't just words. It was theology being worked out day in and day day out. It was theology in our lives. This food is given to us by a gracious and generous God, not for our enjoyment alone, but so that we can use our bodies with all our strength to his service. He taught me one Christmas. We, we were not a wealthy family um, with four kids and having moved from the inner city where my dad was in management and to get us out of the city, we moved to the country and he took, kind of started at the bottom again within his company and so we were, you know, we were good working middle class, maybe just slightly below the halfway mark or whatever. And so we never had a whole lot of extra. We didn't eat out. We didn't do anything like that. We, we had enough. And my dad was a hard worker, always provided. But one Christmas came around and everybody was getting the Atari 2600. Now, if you don't know what this is, um, this is, this is how God will say to you, heaven's going to be awesome. Everybody gets one when you go. The Atari 2600 was the first video game that really went big, Right. You had the joystick and some paddle controllers, and um, video games were all the rage, and I wanted one for Christmas. And so I knew my dad would, you know, get, he, Christmas was a big deal in our house, and even though it was more expensive than we would normally spend, I just, you know, I want to want to, and just a few weeks before Christmas came, like literally like three weeks before Christmas came, on a Sunday morning in my little small country church, the pastor got up and said, our heater is going bad, we need to replace the heater in the church. And I was like, Great. I was old enough to know what that meant. There would be adjustments in our church, and there would be adjustments in my family. And so my dad reaches over, and he hands me a $100 bill. And he says, hey, this is your Atari, but I'd like to give it in the offering, but it's really your call. Now, that is not a fun thing. I just want to say, again, this is not training on how to be a parent. This is not... I, the tension in me of wanting to love Jesus and not go to hell. And at the same time, I really want an Atari 2600. So the offering buckets come by and I'm holding it for like five minutes. It wasn't. It was two and a half seconds, but it felt like five minutes. And I put it in there and he looked at me and he said, I'm, I'm proud of you. Now, the rest of the story is, is we got the heater and I still got an Atari 2600. But what I walked away with was there would be moments in my life when I would have to decide between whether it's mine or his. And you can't grow spiritually all the way you're supposed to grow until you have these conversations with yourself. You can't. Your spiritual growth will be stumped. And I love you too much. This whole series has been about spiritual growth. And you'll have to decide, is the, world, is, is the world, does it belong to God or does it belong to you? Jesus reminded, of this, uh, reminded us of this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That wherever our heart goes, there's our treasure. Wherever our treasure goes, there's our heart. They're intricately connected that's why people who talk about this thing say this phrase all the time. You want to know what's important to you? 
Look at your checkbook. You can also look at your calendar where you spend your time and money. That is your value being worked out. And the truth is that some of you would be much more spiritually well off if you would go ahead and decide that the things in your life do not belong to you. They belong to God. Our second blank is your spiritual condition and your handling of material things like money are inextricably linked. They are. And honestly, most pastors are afraid to tell you this. They're afraid that you're going to think we're all about money here. And honestly, I'm a little bit concerned about that. So I'm taking great care to tell you that we're not all about money here. But you'll have to decide that for yourselves. Here's what I've discovered. Now, just this is not scientific. I don't have stats on this, and I love stats and that sort of thing, right? But I don't have any stats. Here's what I've discovered, though, is that right now, at this point in the message, there's a handful of you room going, go, Ben, preach it. Come on, pour it on. You fall into one of two camps. You have kids that are screwing up with money, and you want them to take money seriously. You want them to take their faith seriously, and you're like, go ahead, pour it on. Let's drink from a fire hose today. Come on, pour it on. And, and the, other, the other part that's loving what's happening today is you've already largely settled this matter. And you know the blessing and the open doors that comes when you put God first in money. You know it. And so as I'm talking, you're like, go ahead, pour it on. People don't talk about this enough. And you know that it was a conduit to your own spiritual growth, and you love people enough, you want them to have the same thing. And then to varying degrees, there's a sliding scale of people who have an opinion about what we're doing right now. And somebody took advantage of you, you saw something on the news, you haven't thought robustly about it for a variety of reasons, whatever, and this bothers you a little bit. But I want to make it clear to you again that your spiritual condition and your personal handling of the material things that God puts in your life like money, those two things are linked and you're never going to separate them. You can resist what I'm saying and the next guy and every guy before and every lady after, but they're connected. That's what Jesus meant when he said your heart and your treasure, they're going to be in the same place. So the bottom line here is is that giving is a maturity issue and not a money issue. It's a maturity issue. And it's not precise to say, I'm spiritually mature and I don't express generosity in my giving to God's work anywhere, really. Or when I do, there's such a drudgery about it. Number two. So then, because it's really a discipleship issue, that's what I mean by it's a maturity issue. Because it's really a discipleship issue, then the Holy Spirit does the real work of growing people. The Holy Spirit does the real work of growing people. This makes me feel awesome as a pastor. Because it's my job to tell you, (laughs) but it's God's job to grow you. I don't have to grow you. And I don't have to answer to you for this. Right? You have to answer to God for the subject that we're talking about. Now, this reminds me of the story of the little boy that was in Sunday school class. Some of you remember what Sunday school class was. And offering time came around, and she knew the little boy had some money in his hands, and he didn't put it in the offering. And so the nice little old Sunday school teacher said to the little boy, do you know what happens to little boys who don't put the money in that they were given for offering? And she, you know, used a little guilt motivation, good church method right there. And he said, yeah, I know what happens to little boys who don't put their money in the offering plate. They end up going to the movies on Sunday afternoon. (laughs) And there it is. There's the basic struggle. The moment you give it back to God, it's not yours anymore. This is not rocket science. This is not a complicated dynamic. You know exactly the struggle here. If it's not in your hands, it's not under your control. The problem is, is that it was never really meant to be under your control. It was meant to be under your management. And it's a Holy Spirit issue. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, here's what Paul says. Now, the first parts are about a particular issue he's dealing with, but the second part is a principle that's broadly applicable. He says, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. They were debating about who's like greatest, right? But here's our phrase, but only God matters, or only God is the one who matters to something, because it's God who makes things grow. 
When it comes to spiritual issues, your spiritual growth is a function of your participation with God's agenda in your life. So here's our next two statements then. The work of the Holy Spirit doesn't depend on, and this is, you're going to love this. Four Corners people, you know this is true because around here you see this in action. The work of the Holy Spirit does not depend on manipulation, slick marketing, or tricks to get people to give. Or you could write, strike out the word give there and put the word grow there. We're not into manipulation and slick marketing or tricks. Our church exists because of the free-willed, cheerful giving of people who call this church home. And this is one of the most generous churches you'll ever step into. And a couple times a year, we make an initiative, and Easter's one, and Christmas is one. I'll tell you about the initiative in a minute. Very low threshold of engagement here. You don't have to worry about it. You know, we're not asking you to write, you know, your retirement fund away. I'm not asking you to give to the church instead of making your mortgage payment. That kind of stuff falls under the category of manipulation and tricks. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, we don't have to do that stuff. The work of the Holy Spirit depends on two things. Here it is. That's the next blank again. So in number two, all three blanks is the, word Holy, the, the phrase Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit depends on a clear presentation of the truth from God's word. That's it. And then number two, receptive people. That's it. That's how you fix problems in church. Clear preaching from God's word. And then we trust God to make his word alive to people and they receive it. We talked about that last week. It's seed that falls in good place in your heart. So the work of the Holy Spirit depends on a clear presentation of the truth from God's word and receptive people. And I'm just, again, casual observation, no scientific study. But my subjective experience is this, is that churches that are low on a clear presentation of God's word often have a corresponding slickness in approach to their ministries. It's observation. You can do that what you want. Number three. So here's, here's the challenge for me then. No matter how awkward this feels for me, and it doesn't feel that awkward. When I first started, it did. I was afraid everybody would hate me when I talked about money. Because they often did. I didn't make it up, by the way. I didn't like, there wasn't an unbased fear. People get up and leave when you talk about this stuff. They do. I thought this was a grace church, and here they are talking about money. I, I know. I get it. So, Number three, though, to not give clear teaching, that's the blank, is to rob disciples an opportunity to grow spiritually. So you have to settle, you have to settle this in your head. Is it money or is it maturity? What's the conversation God wants to have with you? And why does he want to have it? Because he knows that the number one competitor for the space of your heart is things. He knows that. Some places in the Bible, it calls it the lust of the eyes. I want. I see and I want. That's what sin does. I see and I want. The woman looked at the fruit and it was desirable to the eye. Genesis chapter 3. He who looks at a woman with lust in his heart. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. I see and I want. How do you break that stranglehold of sin? Generosity is one way. You realize it's not mine. It's not mine. It's not mine. So to not give a clear teaching is to rob. Look at what Paul said to Timothy. Now, you have to think about Timothy for a second. Timothy's a young guy pastoring a very influential church. He's at the church at Ephesus. He's the lead pastor at the church of Ephesus, and it's over his head. I mean, just the work is hard. He's young, so people are looking down on him. He's young, so Paul says to Timothy, look, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Instead, set an example for them. Let your speech, let your life, let it be an example. Even though you're young, you can shine. And then Timothy's like, look, there's too much work to do. So God says to him, look, so what you're going to do is you're going you're to call forth elders, you're going to appoint them, and you're going to look for these kinds of people, and then you're going to release them to do ministry in the life of the church. And then he says to Timothy, here's the third lesson. He's, Timothy's like, yeah, but I'm afraid. Like, people scare me. Number one challenge in your leadership is that right there. It's fear. Wherever it is God's calling you to lead, whatever it is, your number one enemy will be fear. 
Will they like me? Will they follow me? Will it work? Will I embarrass myself? So Paul says to Timothy over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Oh, and by the way, if your stomach's quivery a little bit, drink just a little bit of wine. Now, you gotta be careful with that verse. But it's in the Bible. It really is. I'm not, I didn't make that up. Now, I may have interpreted it a little bit freely, but, but it really is in the Bible. Why? Well, no, why did he tell Timothy that? Because Timothy was often afraid. So he says to Timothy these words when it comes to this subject. Look at these words. Now, these are straight from the Bible. I have no commentary from me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Boy, don't we know that? How many of you are old enough to have lived through 2008? 40% cuts in retirement. Our own church was caught up in you know, land management issues. It's like we had a plan and boom, it literally changed within 30 days. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So does God not want you to have some stuff? Of course he wants you to have stuff. It's for your enjoyment. The, the good phrase is here, he wants to meet your need. He wants to provide some of your wants. There's where we struggle. Some, we like all, I see I want. And he wants to ultimately use your money to help fund kingdom work through your life. So it's there for your enjoyment. And then he said, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. All right, that's good. I just got to do nice things. And to be generous. Well, doggone it. And willing to share. And this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. That brings us to our next point. Money makes a great slave, but a terrible master. Money makes it. One of the reasons God wants you to have robust conversations with yourself and with him about money is, is he knows money will enslave you. Again, some of you put a cap on your spiritual influence because you're just not taking this stuff seriously. That's the truth. And you put a cap on your own productivity, your own generosity. It's almost as if you're like squeezing the life out. And this isn't some prosperity gospel thing. Well, we don't do that here. I don't like that. I push that stuff out the door as quickly as I can hear about it, right? This is not a give to get kind of thing. But it's clear that generosity and having an appropriate theology of stuff opens you to be more in align with God's work in your life and through your life. So John chapter 8, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said these words, if you hold on to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So it's about freedom here, not slavery. So they answered him kind of arrogantly, but we're Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves to anyone. Interestingly, at that very moment they spoke that Rome was in charge. They kind of were. But oh, they, we, they may have political power, but we are free, right? How can you say that we will be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. When it comes to money, there's all kinds of opportunity for sin to creep in. And sometimes under the banner of all kinds of otherwise good things. Sometimes it's a matter of degree. I mean, how much security do you need? You need some. You got to save. But that's a biblical principle. You got to put away for a rainy day. Biblical principle. You got to make sure your family's taken care of. Biblical principle. But you don't necessarily have to enjoy the standard of living that you currently have. That's something you got to wrestle with. And I don't know what's the right one for you. And I don't have to. You do. You can't outsource this to somebody else. But all through the Bible, we're war we, we are warned about the challenges of money. Greediness, that's a real issue. It crowds out the work of God in your own heart. It manifests itself in all kinds of family dynamics, typically built on fear or control. So God then has put in place in the scripture an entire set of mechanisms so that greed can be broken in your life clear teaching from the scripture, the whisper of his spirit to be generous here when everything in you wants to hold on, opportunities to give above and beyond what you would normally do. 
seasons of your life where you're more generous, seasons of your life where you pull back. All that's part of the rhythm of development that he takes us through. Pick any spiritual dynamic, any area in which God wants you to grow, and the dynamics are similar as they are with the subject we're talking about today. And God wants to grow you in love and loving other people. He puts people in your life that need some extra love. He doesn't just deposit love in your heart. He puts a hard person in your life. Listen, you got to be careful with your prayers. They're dangerous. When you pray, God, grow me in love. You have in mind Valentines and Cupid and hearts. And, uh-uh. God's just going to make your husband difficult. And you're going to have an opportunity to love him. And he loves you enough that even if you don't pray prayers like that, he's going to make people challenging. He's going to put you in situations where you're going to have an opportunity to love because he loves you. And he's more interested in your development than he is your enjoyment. And I know that's an anti-American idea. I know it. But God is more interested in your development than your enjoyment. He really is. And so when you realize that your mouth is out of control, he's going to put you in an opportunity to be quiet. When everything in you wants to just let it fly, he will. That's how he'll grow you. And when he wants to rein in the appetites of the flesh, he's going to give you an opportunity just to see how empty and hollow it is to constantly satisfy every one of your whims. You'll satisfy them, but they won't fulfill. He'll make you empty. And when God wants to deal with greed, he gives you an opportunity very often to give. That's what happens. So number five, God planned that it would take money to do ministry. Here's why. So the inherent tension would be forced. The inherent tension would force important conversations and commitments from you. God designed it so that it would take money for churches to exist. He meant for that to happen. It wasn't an accident. It's not a result of the fall. That's part of how he wants to grow you. It is. And he meant for you to have to work for a living. He did. Even though the fall talks about I'm going to work by the sweat of the brow. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve were told to work the garden. That's just good theology. You have to work in order to earn. Otherwise, it does all kinds of bad things in your heart. You start thinking you deserve stuff. Right? And then you start feeling like slighted and the world's not fair when you don't get what you want. I tried to put on my best like crybaby voice right there. You know? I don't know if it worked or not, but I, I felt it in me as I was saying it. I just kind of see, see that, right? No, you work for what you get in every area of life except for grace. But once God gives you grace, he wants you to partner with him and put some effort on it and let him grow you and develop you. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, there's kind of a process that Paul talks about to the Corinthian church. Here's what he says. So here's how we're going to do it, Corinthian church. On the first day of every week, which in this case was Sunday, set aside some of what you've earned in the previous week. So the very first thing in the new week, set aside some of what you earned in the previous week and give it as an offering. And how much? Well, the amount depends on how much the Lord's helped you earn. So it's kind of a proportional thing going on. If he's blessed you a lot, you give a lot. And if you haven't gotten a lot of blessing, you give a little. And if you didn't get anything, you give nothing. But if you got something, you give something. Pretty clear principle. And in this way and in a hundred other passages in the Bible, in fact, Jesus talked about it honestly more than anything else. That's not a lie. He talked about the dynamics of money, of giving and receiving, more than anything else. And Jesus did it because he knows it's the number one competitor for our hearts. So he puts in place these practices. Give on the day of worship. That's when Christians worshiped in the early church. Most of them were Jewish, so they went to church on Saturday and Friday night with their heritage. But in this new community that was being developed, they did it on Sunday mornings very often. So they would go to church and he would say, part of what you're going to do here is you're going to give. It's for you and it's for the work. And in that tension, 
God's going to do some incredible stuff. You're actually going to see miracles happen in people's lives as you're faithful to this giving dynamic that breaks the, bra- the back of greed. That's one way it's going to happen. You're just going to give as God blesses you. So the principle here is very simple. If he hasn't blessed you, then don't give, right? And obviously, he's talking about earnings and receiving. So we're past the agrarian society of the Old Testament where it was, you know, just bring in some of the grain that's in your cupboard. Now we're on to earning, which is, you know, implies kind of a cash and income kind of thing. And you can see that as society has changed, the principles haven't changed. So one way that God helps us to grow is he says, you're going to give op- give, be given opportunities to give to the Lord's work. Now, why would you do that? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because it doesn't mean much to you. These passages aren't written to the world. These are written to church people. And if the gospel has been impacted, impacting in your life, then you give to the work of the gospel in the local church. One of the things that's interesting to me is this, long before most of you walked in this room, now some of you have been here from the beginning, so this is not true for those that have been here for a long time. But long before you walked in, people were praying and serving and they painted and they put down carpet and screwed in light bulbs and changed the toilet paper and they did all kinds of work and they gave. Some people here have given for almost 13 years in hopes that one day somebody like you would walk in. And long before you walked in, dozens of dollars were given to make sure there was a spot for you. And our hope is that you would come in all selfish and greedy and needy. We were hoping that would happen. And God would grip your heart and give you a better picture of the world and deposit his free grace in your life. And you would experience the free grace in part because everything here was free to you. And we're glad to do that. It's weird. Please come needy. We'll just give you stuff. And so we'll like buy pens and hope you take them. That's a small thing. And we'll buy coffee and, you know, in our case, it's largely donated, but we'll buy the stuff given away because somebody gives the coffee. It's pretty incredible generosity. But we buy the cups and we'll we'll buy that and, and give it away. And there'll be resources pretty often that are given away. And if you can't afford something we're doing and we want to do it, somebody will pay for it. And we're going to send our kids to camp and, People will pony up and over half of all the expensive camp for every kid they wanted to go is paid for. Pretty generous. In hopes that you would just take, 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 and in that taking, believe that God wanted to be generous to you. And when you go to the bathroom, there would actually be toilet paper there, which is a good thing because they don't do that overseas. I was just there. (laughs) They don't do that. There's no guarantee. You only do that once, by the way. Then you, uh, you go prepared. I'm just going to say that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> but when you come here, there's going to be toilet paper. And we're going to have soap and paper towels. We're going to do it. And we want you to take, take, take. In fact, it costs us about seven bucks for everybody that walks through the door in a week. Ooh. really does. That adds up. We couldn't do it. We'd run out of money. Boom. But every week, people give. Why do they do it? Because those people who were takers experienced God. God began to be the Lord of their life. And one of the areas he wanted to be Lord over was their money. So they started giving back. And that's how the work goes on. It's always been that way. It's not an accident. It's exactly how God wants it to happen. He loves to take needy, greedy, taking people and change their life and use them to make the gospel go even farther. That's how he does it. It's not a mystery. This is exactly his plan. And in every case, he begins to break the stranglehold of sin in a person's life through something as simple as, look, if you make some money, give some money to the work of God. When you do that, it chokes out a little bit of the greed. Number six. Another way he does it is through this word, tithing. is a biblical standard for disciples. Now, the word tithing, in case you don't know, simply means 10%. And this gets a lot of bad press. But it's about as biblical an idea as you're going to find. It's commanded in the Old Testament. And so somebody says, we're not in the Old Testament. You can read the passage in Malachi 3 where God gets really upset at his people. And he says, look, you're robbing me. Like you're in church and you're robbing me. You're like, you won't even bring it in. 
And so what I'm asking you to do is bring the whole tithe, all of it. Don't hold it back. Bring it all in. That's Old Testament, right? So it doesn't apply. Is that what we think? So it's commanded in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's not so much commanded as it is commended. Commended. So Jesus talking in Luke eleven forty two. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth. Woe, and it given it, so like, is this a negative thing? Well, look at what they did. They were given a tenth of the small things, like even down to their herbs and spices, mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs. But in that, like you're so particular about money, you miss the bigger things like justice and the love of God. So that's it, right? We should, instead of money, we should focus on justice. But look what he says. This is Jesus' words. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It's a both and for Jesus. And some people are like, well, that's only one place in the New Testament. My response to that has always been, how many times does Jesus have to tell you to do something? I'm not trying to be a jerk about that. It's like my dad taught us this principle. When I made 10 bucks mowing the lawn and I'd come home with that $10 bill, my dad would very often open up his wallet. He always had cash. He'd open up his wallet and he'd give me like a five and five ones. And I knew knew why. Because I couldn't give 10% with a $10 bill. He taught me that $1 belonged to the Lord. Do I regret it? Absolutely not. And I'm going to make a statement. You're not going to believe me. You're going to think it's self-serving, and I'm just trying to get something from you. That's fine. You can think that all you want, but you'll never change me. My 90% goes a whole lot further than my 100% goes. I know that don't make sense, but I was a business major, and I do accounting. I know. I know. But my 90% when I tithe goes a whole lot farther to the point that Jill and I for years have never just tithed. Tithed. That's not a word. (laughs) Jill and I have for years gone beyond just giving a tithe. We believe that it's commanded in the Old Testament and Jesus commended the practice in the New Testament and it was settled for us. And so when we get paid, we give. And it has opened for us a discipline about money that no other dynamic in our life has done because it has taken work and effort. And every time we have a conversation about our giving, we get more intentional with our giving. We get more intentional with our money overall. We sit down and uh, we got our giving statement this week for the first quarter like a lot of you at Four Corners did. And I looked at it and I said, am I happy with this? And we were. We were. And we felt very good about where we were. So tithing, giving and tithing. And then number seven, occasionally disciples are called by God to give sacrificial giving. These are kind of momentary in the moment. You don't know why, you just feel motivated to give. And you kind of, you know, you dig down deep into your pockets and you give to something that you feel like honors the Lord. Now when you talk about these kinds of things, people can get really, really wigged out. But you have to understand that it's not about money. Now, the implications are huge. Jill and I trying to take seriously our giving helped us rein in our spending because we couldn't spend the way we were spending and give the way we wanted to give. And then that caused us to think about our long-term planning and strategy anyway, which caused us to take much more seriously much more seriously, things like retirement and that kind of thing. And then at some point along the way, somebody taught me a principle of 10, 10, 80. 10 to God, 10 to savings, and 80% to live on. And we started living below our means. And that opened up a whole new door for us. And as we started letting Jesus impact our lives around money, we found not restriction, we found freedom. We did. Now, Your story is your story, but I hope at least you're pursuing your story if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're letting God write a story in your heart about money and things and stuff, not just hoping that your heaven is secured. The reason I hope that is very practical. I want it for you. I want you to grow in all the ways God wants you to grow. You may not believe that yet, but if you hang around you listen to me long enough, you watch the ministries of this church, I think you'll begin to believe that. We want you to grow. I want you to become a fully developing follower of Jesus. And 
I want our church to be fully funded into all the work that God has called us to do. And the truth of the matter is, as my pastor taught me years ago, all the money that God wants to use in this church to do all the ministry that he's called us to do is already in the church. And then he would joke and he'd say, the problem is most of it's still in our pockets. Nobody laughed, just like right then. It wasn't ever funny. It wasn't ever funny, you know. But he'd kind of drive that point home. He would. And, you know, every time he would, Jill and I'd go home and talk about it. And sometimes we'd make adjustments. So it's Easter, and typically at Easter we raise money for a project or two. And we're not doing that this year. What we're doing instead is we're asking people who call this church home. So if you're not calling this church home, I'm not talking to you right now, all right? You can text, all right? Tell everybody how awesome the sermon was. At Four Corners Bend. That's my handle, all right? Um, <clears throat> but if you call us home, here's what I ask you to do. One of two things. Either give a, an Easter gift just to the good of the church. We'll take that money, put it aside for summer. And, you know, as we go through the normal giving drop that happens in summer, we'll be protected against that. So that's what we'll do if you give. It'll go to the general well-being of the church. But more importantly, we're asking everybody who calls this church home to just make an adjustment in your giving. Just make an adjustment. Like if it's been a couple years since you've adjusted your giving, just like up at 1%. Or if you don't give regularly, give regularly. If you don't automate your giving and you kind of forget or it comes last, then automate your giving. So rather than doing a big Easter drive this year, we're just asking people to make an investment in their church with their regular giving. How much? Well, that depends on you. That depends on you. Now, if you don't call this church home, ignore all that, all right? But the reason why you're not going to hear us pushing a project is because we just want to make a general investment in the church. But if in saying that you feel frustrated, then what you need to hear is this, don't give at all or give somewhere else. I care more about you and your growth than I do about receiving the gift here personally. And there are a lot of good things you can give to in Cincinnati. And if you don't feel good about giving it here, give somewhere else. But don't not give. Because when you do that, you'll strangle the work of God in your life. And I don't want that for you. And you're probably not talking seriously about your spending if you don't give. And you might not even be talking seriously about your long-term plans with money if you don't give. I have found giving opens up all kinds of avenues for healthy living. And remember, it's not about money. It's about your growth. So with that said, why don't you take out your Connect card and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. You know, when you talk about, about giving, it falls under the category of lordship. And I tried to make it clear that I was talking to followers of Jesus, but it's very possible you're not a follower of Jesus today. And I'd like to give you a chance to receive freely what he offers. He gave his life on a cross. Millions of Christians around the world are celebrating that. In fact, some of our brothers and sisters in Egypt just this weekend were celebrating that. And their lives were snuffed out in a moment by a terrorist bomb. It just happened just a few hours ago. And they're gathering to celebrate the one who gives eternal life, and then they stepped into it. It could be that you're not ready to step into eternity. That can change right now. It's totally free. That's what grace is. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible says you can agree with what God says about you, that you're a sinner and you need a savior. You can't save yourself. No amount of good works will do it. But if you trust the work that Jesus did on the cross and when he was resurrected from the tomb that we'll celebrate next week, you'll trust that that work completes the path between you and God. If you trust the work of Jesus and not yourself, the Bible says you can be saved. So you receive what he's done. You believe in your heart. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We'd ask you to take your pen and check next step A. And we'll communicate with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Who's experienced his blood washing away their sins. And they're not, you're not perfect, but you start this development process where more and more he becomes the leader of your life. Or how about next step B? Today, I'm choosing to be baptized. I'm choosing to be baptized. We've baptized more people this year already than all of last year. It's incredible what God's doing around here. And if you have questions about that, if you'll check the box, put the card in the offering bucket, we'll communicate that with you this week about that. Now, next step C says this. I know that I can't talk about money with some of you being afraid about where you are. So I don't need to know the details, but if you want to just check next step C that says, pray for my financial situation, 
We'll do that. And if you're struggling to meet your house payment, you can put the stuff I'm saying on hold for a while. But don't put everything on hold. Check this box and let some of our quality people here who believe in God's financial principles show you how to break free of that stranglehold that you're in. And we'll sit with you. We'll get you a plan and help you break free. You just have to not be so arrogant. You have to be humble enough to admit where you are. So check the box and we'll pray with you. And then somebody will reach out. Next step D, if you'll check this, I'd like a healthier financial plan. I'd like to talk to somebody about that. If you'll check both of these, somebody will reach out to you and say, hey, let's sit down, have a coffee. We got some tools that'll help you. All right? We care more for you than we care about what we can get out of you. And then next step B, this is for people who call Four Corners Home, who would say, Ben, you can count on me to increase my giving or I'll give a one-time Easter gift to help Four Seas Ministries. I don't need to know the amount. We'll see it when it comes in, right? But you'll go ahead and make those changes starting this week. Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I uh, thank you so much that uh, people loved me enough years ago to start teaching me about the stranglehold that money could have in my life. God, I haven't always been smart with it. I've made some really big, bad decisions. But you've been faithful and you've continued to call me and develop me. Lord, I've been walking with you long enough now to know that you're a faithful God and your principles do not fail. Father, I pray for this church. I'm asking you, Lord, to make this the greatest year of spiritual growth we've ever seen. And we don't want to be healthy in every area of our life except for money. So I pray, Lord, that the stranglehold of darkness, of lies and deception, of hurt and disappointment over years that would keep us from being sensitive to what you're saying, I pray, Lord, that that would be broken and that your truth would come crashing into our hearts. And where there's been disobedience, Lord, I pray there'd be obedience. Where there's been greed, I pray there'd be generosity. And where there has been fear, I pray there would be boldness. And when there's been foolishness, I pray that you would make us wise. Lord, I join with those people right now who are saying, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I want to follow you with my life. And I pray, Lord, for every single person that you're putting in our path this week to invite to this place, that we'll use the words, sit with me. Come, be with me at church. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is free. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.